नमस्ते एवरीवन वेलकम टू द चार बुक पॉडकास्ट दिस इज योर होस्ट कुशल मेहरा ऑल राइट टुडे वी आर गोइंग टू बी टॉकिंग अबाउट अल्ट्रूइज्म एंड व्हाट अल्ट्रूइज्म मींस डिफरेंट अवतार्स एंड इट्स एप्लीकेशन इन सोसाइटी फ्रॉम एन एवोल्यूशनरी साइकोलॉजी एंड एन एवोल्यूशनरी बायोलॉजी लेवल एंड टू गिव अस एन एक्सप्लेनेशन अबाउट अल्ट्रूइज्म एज ऑलवेज वी हैव आवर रेसिडेंट साइंटिस्ट राजीव खान राजीव थैंक्स फॉर कमिंग ऑन द पॉडकास्ट हे इट्स माय प्लेजर कुशल All right Rajiv let's start at this then for the people who may not know what altruism is could you give us the basic definition of what altruism is how did it come up as a proper uh, uh, you know trait at an evolutionary level as far as our species are concerned and who came up with it yeah so altruism um, you know you can just define altruism as something that you're doing where it's imposing a cost on you and um it's benefiting others and uh basically uh you know you know what you're doing to some extent and for humans you know what you're doing so if you take um if you sell some of your um luxury goods and then you buy food for poor people that you're not related to uh so that they can have better nutrition so they can survive uh you have no connection with these people but you're giving of yourself to others that's altruism right um and we'll say and let's we'll get into this it, altruism is um in an analytical sense it is fraught with semantic confusion in terms of how people define it and how they define it away so you can say like to to tell like how can i define what what i just described away you can say well the reason that you are giving your luxury goods away to sell to buy food for these other people is you don't want them to cause social chaos and actually that's in your self interest so that's self interested altruism that's not true altruism true altruism is you know when you just give without any expectation of um of any return but the problem is like it starts to like it's um you know until we in america has changed the goal posts where you kind of like moving away you can always define altruism away and so i think we do need to be careful about that because um i mean like what is i mean is ultimate altruism basically where um you know you sacrifice your children uh so that strangers who hate you can survive i mean that would be altruistic i guess. you know i mean it starts to get like a little absurd so you have to be a little careful but these are the kind of issues that come up immediately when we talk about altruism in terms of how we even define it so so this bit about altruism uh, altruism and self interest uh, this was something that uh, George Price had pointed out right George Price had said that uh, mm-hmm. in fact he ended up committing suicide or something of that sort that, yeah, that's yeah, what yeah, had yeah. happened right Yeah, so George Price. I mean, there's a there's a interesting biography. I actually, like hung out with the author. So, um, so let's let, let's set the stage real quickly because you you already dropped a name. So, the problem altruism in a biological and biosocial science, uh, really, really, um, became big in so in the 1960s. And there's three names that we need to talk about real quickly. Uh, George Price, who you mentioned, who was a chemist, who um, basically he won a lawsuit. He moved to England, used the money to become an evolutionary biologist. He formulated what's called the Price equation, which is a covariance equation that basically partitions um, like evolutionary change and heritability by like layers of organization. So um, when we're talking selfish gene, all these things, um, there is evolution at the level of within the genome, 
So for example, uh, there could be a genetic element that's very, very, um, has a high fitness within the genome, but can actually cause problems on the individual level. Um, so to give you a concrete example, Huntington's disease is due to a triplet codon that for various biophysical reasons repeats and expands every generation. And so it's very fit as a variant, it's replicating itself, but it also kills you early. Okay, so that's the, the, the detriment that it has on the individual. And so you have the individual and the genomic level of fitness. A lot of the genes within the human genome are what's called transposons. They're just replicating selfish genetic units. The reason that those genes replicate so easily is they have no fitness impact on the individual. And so um, all that matters for them is their fitness within the genome when they reproduce every generation. And so that's one where it's benign, you would say. Uh, you can see the same thing within individuals. Uh, there are behaviors which are spreading within individuals uh, that increase individual fitness, and they can decrease group level fitness, although sometimes they can make it the same or they can increase it. And so then you have to compare that level. So um, for example, uh, you know, like in a lot of behavioral economics, behavioral situations, you have a free rider problem. Uh, so let's say that you have a group um, and this is a real example that I can, I'm drawing from my real life. You have a group um, and you're in high school and your final grade is based on a group work project. And the, the teacher puts no enforcement mechanisms in terms of how the time gets allocated. And somebody in the group says, I'm not gonna do any work on the project because I just wanna get a C. Um, if you guys wanna do more work and get an A for us, that's cool, but I'm not gonna work. I'm gonna just hang out and do other things. So that's very like optimal for them because they just want to see. But it's not optimal for the group because then everybody else in the group has to do more work, right? But there's no cost to them. Um, they, they, they only want to see. If they get better than the C, that's fine for them. But really, there's no way to punish them. There's no way to fix the free rider problem. So in human societies, we often have free rider problems, right? Now, the final thing uh, that I want to talk about um, is I mentioned Hamilton Price and Maynard Smith. Hamilton came up with a formal model called inclusive fitness. Um, Jan John Maynard Smith actually came up with something very similar at about the same time, um, and his is called kin selection. These two are basically the same. Um, inclusive fitness is describing the, the fitness effects across the, kin across the kin unit. Kin selection is referring to like the, um, the impact of uh, you know, like how it works. And um, you know, uh, Maynard Smith's uh, mentor, PhD advisor, uh, J.B.S. Haldane, one of the fathers of population genetics, he had a, a quip where he would give he would give his own life for an identical twin. He would give uh, his own life for two siblings. Uh, and he would give uh, his own life for eight cousins. And the reason the numbers work out like this is you share about half your genome with your full siblings. You share your whole genome with your identical twin. So from an evolutionary perspective, uh, if there's a situation um, where one twin has to sacrifice himself or herself or themselves uh, for the survival of the other twin from an evolutionary perspective in genes it doesn't matter who sacrifices and who doesn't because they're genetically identical correct mm -hmm. um i mean that, that, this is a rough rough and ready um for siblings you have a situation where you shouldn't sacrifice your own life for a sibling evolutionarily because they only share half your genes okay but if there's like four siblings five siblings and you can sacrifice your own life you should um, for, um, for children, for parents and children, it's a little different because 
children, you literally share half your genes with your child. But um, if you, if like, if you're older, especially if you're a woman for biological reasons, but if you're older and your child dies and you survive, you may have no other children. So it still could be beneficial for a mother to sacrifice her life for a single child, even though they're only half related to that child, because that's the only probability of their genes proceeding into the future. And so this is the logic of inclusive fitness and kin selection. Basically, it talks about distributions of relatedness across a pedigree and altruism evolving as a way to increase uh, the perpetuation of genes into the future as a function of relatedness. So you will engage in an altruistic act um, if it's a large number of your relatives where you will sacrifice of yourself in some way. And it doesn't have to be your death, you know, but um, the sacrifice of yourself because your group benefits and the group is related to you. That is the logic of inclusive fitness. That is the logic of altruism in a biosocial evolutionary sense. And that's why I wanted to say we need to be careful about how we talk about altruism semantically because you could say, well, that's not really altruistic. That's selfish. Like there's copies of you and them. And, but I'm just like, this is not how English works. This is, you know, so there's a proximate aspect of evolution where you talk about the, the short-term behavior. So when a mother sacrifices herself for her child, she's not thinking, well, I'm not going to have any descendants if I don't sacrifice myself. That's, that's not what's going on in the psychology. Her thought is, you know, I love this child. I'm going to sacrifice myself because they have a future. They're the most important thing, blah, blah, blah. Evolutionarily, though, evolution doesn't care about that. Uh, evolution will just favor that psychology, favor that mentality. Um, in this way, you could say what we think is good and true is good and true because it's beneficial. You know, what we think is not good and true uh, is not good and true because it's not beneficial, right? Um, so there's, that's the ultimate level of evolutionary biology of analysis. And then there's approximate level of behavior, psychology, and motivation. And those two need to be separated. Um, and so this is the, the general evolutionary framework. And since I've been talking, I, I, I want us to talk about reciprocal altruism and other things because there's lots of other ways of approaching the problem of altruism. But I, I will stop talking in you have asked your all right so, so now let's get into reciprocal altruism so yeah. so what is reciprocal altruism and how does it fit into the larger you know larger discussion of uh, let's say homo sapiens yeah so all of these all of these constructs are somewhat artificially separated by us for analysis so obviously reciprocal altruism can overlap with inclusive fitness and i think the listeners can understand that you may have uh, reciprocal altruistic relationships with your cousins right so you're related to them but let's like take that off the table and talk about a stranger how does reciprocal altruism work basically this is game theory uh tit for tat behavior right so you have an iterated game which means that you have repeated interactions and so reciprocal altruism is you scratch my back and i scratch back. and why do you use that analogy because it's really hard to scratch your back yourself but if somebody else scratches your back, that's minimal cost to them, and it's really upside for you. Now, what you could do after that, say, uh, nah, I don't really, like, that's gross. I'm not going to scratch your back. So that's being totally selfish. But here's the issue. If you meet that person again and you need them to do something for you, are they going to do anything for you? No. They know you already have put an input of, like, what kind of person you are, what your behavior is. And so their expectation now is um, – you're going to be totally selfish, and so they're not going to help you. How does that affect you? So let's think you're an ancient tribe, and you're the you're the guy who will not scratch other people's backs. Well, no one's going to scratch your back. They know who you are. It's not a one-off game. It's it's a iterated game of tit for tat. 
And so reciprocal altruism is just, um, you know, it's describing this interaction of repeated interactions. And it, it, this, this is a, this is a genetic relatedness blind, right? Because you could be related to them or you could be unrelated to them, but either way, the optimum behavior is a tip for tap behavior where, um, you know, you do something for someone at a minimal cost to you, um, but it's a potential great upside to you later when they can do the same thing for you. Now, if you expend that energy and they don't do it back to you, you're never going to, the, the mentality is going to be, I've updated my prior expectation there and I'm not going to do this little costly thing for me because they're not going to do the good thing for me as well, or for them. I'm not going to do the costly thing for them because they're not going to do the good thing for me. And so within a tribe, you have reciprocal altruist dynamics where there's these iterated gains, uh, where there's interactions, and you develop a sense of people. So I'm sure that you know, there are people you know that are very trustworthy. You would trust them. And why do you think they're trustworthy? I, do you have like a window into their soul? No, but you know how they behave over their whole lifetime. And so they've given you information. Now, the upside of that for them is they could be super selfish and engage in fraud against you. Like this happens. But usually most people, their natures are reflected in their day-to-day -day behavior. You know who's trustworthy, you know who's not. And reciprocal altruism is just a form of altruism that takes that into account. And it can work with relatives, it can work with non-relatives. Uh, it can work with different species. So, you know, those situations where there are sharks and predatory fishes uh, that get um, parasites eaten off them by these small little fish that they can eat, um, that's called symbiosis. But we only call it symbiosis because it's between different species. Uh, if it was within the same species, we call it reciprocal altruism. So the big fish knows that if it eats the small fish, that'll be delicious in the short term. But the small fish are going to like know that that's the behavior of that fish, and they're not going to eat the parasite off it. And that's going to cause a bigger problem for the big fish in the long term. So a symbiotic relationship develops where the big fish foregoes, uh, foregoes you know, eating the small fish, and the small fish overcomes its fear of the big fish because it's more beneficial for the small fish to eat the parasite off the big fish, because that's like a, a constant source of energy, you know? Um, and then for the big fish, it's better to get the parasite off it because that's big, a bigger fitness hit to it than just like not eating the small fish right now. All right, so, so obviously in altruism, there was another thing, right? I remember uh, Sapolsky talking about it. There's that, uh, that tit for tat while being the optimal strategy is was cloned to signal error. And then they even have that Pavlov strategy that was added later on where, um, uh, what was that? You, 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 you follow tit for tat, but the first move always has to be cooperation. And then maybe after that you go into tit for tat. What, what was that? I yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there's, the I mean, there, there's a bunch of different games, you know, and there's like this, there's like all these there's spiteful strategy. There's tit for tat. There's like a super altruist strategy. Um, you know, and so, you know, sometimes you want information on the person in some way, you want a signal that they're, uh, that they're honest oh, and so you i got i i got i remember the name it was forgiving tit for tat yeah yeah so there's modifications of all these forgiving tit for tat um like so sometimes you know obviously um per people make mistakes and they make mistakes because they misunderstand they misidentify or they can't execute and so if you're if if, if so i mean a lot of these are done in computer simulations and it turns mm -hmm. out that adding a little error parameter of uh just acceptance of error over the long term, your fitness is still higher because that error is an error. It's not actually true selfishness by the person. So if there's a systematic bias towards being selfish, like you're going to get screwed by them. 
But if sometimes they just make a mistake, uh, then that's different, um, right? So yeah, like I mean, imagine like a personal life if someone uh, has an affair and it's like the only affair of their whole life and they made a mistake, whatever. Um, you know, there are other cases where people just constantly cheat on their spouse. Those are obviously, I think, ethically, we can judge both of them rather harshly. But in terms of real life outcomes, I think we can say that the person who had one affair, uh, they made a mistake, but the marriage may, may still benefit both of people, you know, even the other person that was betrayed. Uh, someone who cheats constantly on their spouse, they're not really in a marriage, you know, I mean, or they're in a marriage for themselves, but the other person is getting screwed, right? That's not, that's not a good situation. So you can evaluate it over life history in terms of like what's going on. So, so another thing, Razib, I wanted to ask you was that obviously, you know, when we are talking about uh, the evolution of altruism or reciprocal altruism uh, at the level of human beings as a species, now we, we have to distinguish between, uh, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm, I'm trying to understand this better. We, we largely have to divide it into two eras, right? It evolved at a time where human beings were primarily hunter-gatherers. And obviously, then you have the advent of agriculture. Agriculture leads to more sedentary lifestyles. And post-sedentary lifestyle uh, human beings are now used to living in larger numbers. So, so how do we understand uh, altruism or reciprocal altruism in these two different eras? So obviously, we're looking at the Dunbar number. And usually what the Dunbar number says in the range of 100 to 250 human beings are used to living in that group. And maybe that's how altruism had evolved uh, or whatever it is. But the point is then, how do we look at reciprocal altruism now at, at the level of our societies, post-agricultural societies then? Yeah, um, so... One thing is reciprocal altruism. These intuitions, uh, they create psycho psychological intuitions in us. These intuitions can be adapted um, adapted for um, other culture, basically other functional cultural units because, uh, you know, we have culture and culture and, and human technology and social structures get, get more complicated. Um, so let's talk about Dunbar's rule on the order of 100. Basically, that means your innate cognitive abilities are enough to keep track of everything in your social ecology, uh, do tip for tat. Um, if you live in a tribe, so let's say, like, let's think about this completely. If you live in a in a in a family unit, let's because I mean I think like the small clan groups of modern hunter gatherers can be a little deceptive because I think pre modern hunter gatherers lived in much more fertile areas, so they're probably bigger. So let's talk about like a, a wandering nomadic group of about a hundred. Okay, that seems plausible. Um, so depending on the social structure, a lot of those hundred people are going to be related to each other. So mm -hmm. from an inclusive altruism perspective. Uh, some expectation of relatedness is probably fine, but you know some people are probably going to be outsiders. Maybe women, or depending on matrilocal situation, men move, marrying into the group, they're going to be unrelated, um, but they're now part of the tribe. So you develop a cultural adaptation. So, for example, evolutionary psychology is talking about fictive kinship. So we're all descended from the common ancestor, Adam and Eve. You know, something like that. Or in like you know, in the concept of a, of a tribe, you have a totem you know, an ancestral totem, an ancestral ancestor. And so you co-opt your intuitions about relatives, like, you know, you know, so like, you know, for example, Muslims call each other brother, right? Uh, they're like, it's a brother, we're a brother, a sister, you know, um, because, you know, you're all sons of, you know, sons of like common ancestor of Adam, made in the image of God, all this stuff. Like, I mean, what is all this? I mean, it's basically a way to co-opt your natural familiar intuitions. Because we have a, because like we don't need to be taught family in a deep level. Like family is like a natural idea in our cognitive architecture, and so you co-opt them. 
So reciprocal altruism scaled up uh, can work just because we co-opt the intuition of these tit-for-tat games. We co-opt the intuition of the family. So there's a book called um, Brotherhood of the Kings about Bronze Age, uh, Bronze Age polities, Bronze Age kingdoms, like the Kingdom of the Mitanni, Babylonia, Egypt, the Hittites. Uh, uh, this is like a weird tangent, but why do they call it the Brotherhood of the Kings? Because they create relationships of fictive and real kinship. So, you know, there'd be like two unrelated, obviously one's Hittite, one's Egyptian, and the Hittite sends his son to marry a princess from the Egyptian um, royal dynasty. So they create um, fictive kinship, they're brothers, they're kings, um, or father and son if there's like an inequality. But they also create real kinship, which we see in royal families all across the world. That's co-opting natural sociality that started at the hunter-gatherer level. But then there's the other thing of reciprocal altruism. Um, the Hittites in Turkey, ancient Turkey, and the Egyptians often went to war. But they had truces. And so you mm -hmm. have a situation where, okay, I'm not – I could – like so the Hittite king could say I could like go across the border – and plunder this village, pl plunder this city. But then the Egyptian would do the same to me. And so you have a situation where you hold back. Even though in the short term, the selfish interest is to take that from the enemy or whatever you want to think about it. But in the medium to long term, peace is beneficial. And so they develop these diplomatic systems, which basically are cultural elite instantiations of the intuition to reciprocal altruism, right? But they also developed fictive kinship, which is the extrapolation culturally of inclusive fitness, which persists to get today in modern religions and modern, modern cultural systems. Uh, and, you know, it persists in the form of citizenship where Americans of all races, all religions, and all backgrounds, they fight and save each other's lives in war. Are they related? No, they're not related. But they have an idea, at least they did. I mean, I think... Uh, to be entirely frank, we are changing for various reasons, and that's a different podcast. Um, an idea that we are all ultimately the same under one law. Uh, we're under one law. We have one citizenship, and we have equal rights before the law. And um, that's like we are – the nation itself has now expanded into this idea of like we are a family. You know, We treat each other in a way um, that is different from the way you – know, uh, you know, we all treat all humans well. But um, we don't treat all humans the same. This is the deep insight of Confucianism, you know, where or or even in Judaism, the tribe, the Jews are subject to the 613 or 612 commandments, but the whole human race is subject to Noah's law, right? So there's a minimal level of humanitarianism that every expected for everybody else, but your own kin, your own in group, you treat differently, and that is a human universal. All right. So now, uh, so, so you did talk about the Hittites and uh, all these other people. So now let's maybe bring this to a, a very specific, you know, level. Let's talk about India. So if you are talking about altruism and we're talking about how it evolves, what reciprocal altruism is, what extended kinship is for that, uh, for that matter. Well, how does extended kinship work? How does it keep on um, functioning in a rapidly changing society so how do we look the entire uh, look at the entire system of jati and varna in this in this kind of a, uh in this kind of an atmosphere so would you say uh jati varna where people you know tend to have a sense of affinity to people of their jati and they don't extend it uh, maybe outside their jati is also uh in a very I don't know. We have 
you know, adaptive weird sort of a way. Yeah, adaptive way. They have kind of adapted this uh, feature, and in some way, you know, Jati <clears throat> Varna uh, is kind of extended kinship. Yeah. <clears throat> so, so one thing we can look at concretely, um, aside from the evolutionary inferences that we make, which is like a higher level of, uh, it's a higher structure level of understanding with approximate like you know time and space. An inference of things we can't see in terms of like evolutionary fitness over thousands of years. Um, we know we can look at relatedness. A lot of Jatis are actually um, you could think of them as extended family groups. Uh, they're not like super closely related, obviously. Like especially when there's a good when there's exogamy, like in a lot of North Indian and Central Indian groups. I mean, South Indian is somewhat different because there's uncle niece and cross cousin marriage. You know, so that's a different situation. But uh, basically, what you see is like let's say like um, like concrete example like you, know, you look at a Mahashwari, okay, from Rajasthan. Uh, genetically, every single Mahashwari that I've looked at, they look, they're not related to each other. They're like maybe third or fourth cousin, you know, that sort of thing. But since they've been intermarrying with the same people over and over again, they've created like a consistent genetic cluster. And this is really common in a lot of Indian um, jatis. Uh, and so, so yes, um, on the one hand, they are like an extended family and they are like biological kin. But the math of this is, is, is a little difficult um, to think about because... Um, so your, your coefficient of relatedness is one half to your sibling. And then it's like one, one eighth to your cousin. And then it's one thirty second to your second cousin. Okay. It's like, I think it's like one, one twenty-eighth. I don't know, to your third cousin. So my point is, um, okay. So relatedness can drive inclusive fitness, but how is it driving inclusive fitness when you share like 1% of, you know what I'm saying? You're not really yeah. closely related. You have very little genetic relatedness. So Hamilton's rule is um, B B times uh, uh, R greater than cost. Uh, the, 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 um, it's a heuristic uh, it, the, that the behavior is favored. So R is the relatedness. So it's like one half or one thirty second. The benefit is obviously the benefit. And then the cost is the cost. So if the cost is... I don't know, twice as much as the benefit, um, then you can imagine something evolving if it's just for siblings. So that's one half, you know, that's an equilibrium. Uh, if they're all identical twins or they're three fourths, then it's definitely going to evolve. But if it's just cousins, no, it won't evolve. Like that will not be benefited. Do you see what I'm saying? And so you can't just, one, the simplest explanation is you can't explain a lot of the altruism simply through inclusive fitness um, because. You're not really that that closely related to a lot of these individuals. Um, a, a longer answer, to be entirely frank, is you have to look at the patterns of relatedness between these groups, and you can have a situation where your relatedness um, is so much closer to people in your jatiwarna. So if you're an ayer, um, you know just in naively, intuitively that you're just genetically much closer to every other Tamil Brahmin. Than you are to the other Tamils, whatever their caste, you know. And so you can think of it that way. But um, another issue is the genetic differences between humans are also kind of small. So again, like I would have to run the math um, in terms of how it would work because the the absolute genetic differences are very small between humans, but the relative genetic differences can be large. So, for example, when uh, when I you know in comparison to my children versus a random person on the street um if you look at the three billion base pairs we're all kind of the same 
But obviously our behavior is totally different because the relative differences yeah. are large, right? And so I know this is long-winded, but I, I want to be clear, this is not simply a matter of describing what's out there because there's a lot of variables and you have to run the map. Now, one thing I did say to you before we got on is, um, so for example, uh, believe it or not, uh, like the monogamous nuclear family is very, very culturally uh, common and universal. And I think we can make from that inference that this is a highly adaptive way to organize human family structures as a social equilibrium. Okay, it's not arbitrary. It doesn't mean it's the only way, you know, mm -hmm. but it's actually, the, the, it looks like it is the most common way, okay, overwhelmingly. Um, even in societies where polygamy is normative, um, it's only tends to be like wealthy men or something, you know, that end up engaging in polygamous marriage, right? Um, so it's an aspiration. It's not, a, it's not realized practice. When it comes to something like Jati Varna, that is actually pretty exceptional. Um, only in India do you really have this sort of social structure. In places like Japan or Europe, you don't. The Middle East has a different thing with its with its can, clan groups. It's more like Northwestern Indian Birdari, but that's a somewhat different thing. Um, it does look like um, these sorts of like extended kindreds and clan groups are very common in other human societies, but the formalization and the strictness of Jati Varna as a cultural um, expression and norm is very, very distinct, if that makes sense. So for example, like Julius Caesar comes from the gens Julia, right? Uh, that's his like, that's his clan, that's his gotra, right? They're all descended from Iulius, the common ancestor. But uh, the, Roman, the Roman patricians and plebeians, they intermarried with each other um, and, you know, they had these networks. It was relatively unstructured. In the Indian context, it's not like that at all, where there's like a lot of deep structure and you never marry out. Like this is this is not the norm, but the fact that it persists does indicate that there's some sort of social equilibrium. Whether that's a, a local optimum or an ultimate optimum, that's a different question. I would assert it's probably a local optimum because it's not um, if it, it's not like super common across human societies. It's restricted to the Indian subcontinent, and then also like when Indians leave the Indian subcontinent, it tends to fade away too. Like you go to Trinidad and Mauritius, they do kind of have varna, but they don't really have like you know, complex jati social systems, those break down. Um, so they're not very robust to external shocks. They're very, very, um, they're very, very like tightly integrated in the Indian subcontinent. And there's a lot of inertia there. And by the way, um, this sort of structure you can see in Pakistani populations too. You don't see it in Bangladeshi populations, genetically. So Bangladeshi do not have any genetic evidence of this, but Pakistanis do. All right. So, so there are two things that I've noticed that, you know, I think, I don't know if there are errors or in understanding or it is what it is. Uh, I sometimes I feel uh, in the Jati Varna discussion in India, a lot of people who are uh, sympathetic or who lean towards this worldview, I think make uh, what I, I think at times is a naturalistic fallacy yeah. where uh, um, sometimes because uh, a meme or a meme apex has survived, I think uh, they go... Ergo, meme has survived. It helps inclusive fitness. It helps inclusive fitness. It is the only reason that that the meme has survived. Now, I think that is committing a naturalistic fallacy because, I mean, even slavery has survived. I mean, I don't know how is slavery benefit, uh, beneficial to human survival. I don't know for, for that reason. Secondly, also, I think sometimes people tend to confuse cooperation and altruism altogether now in my view now uh, you started this discussion where you used a very important word 
there should uh, be altruism exists when there is a cost on the actor. That means the person who's committing the act of altruism. Now, here's the thing. Now, the classical case is always, right? Let's say one village has one jati, the other village has another jati. Now, when I go and hunt a giraffe or I hunt a, a, a bear and I bring it back and I distribute within my jati, because now we are talking about a post-agricultural society where the definition of a society has expanded from a pre-agricultural society and the number of people have increased. So we need to forget that Dunbar's number and we need to get into a post-agricultural world. So the, the range of the altruistic narrative changes mm -hmm. here. So, so uh, distributing food to your jati would be something that I would like to classify in cooperation. Altruism would be that there is another village which is not your jati. Now you share your food with that jati at a cost to your own jati and that to me would qualify as altruism. So in a weird sort of way, then jati varna as it stands today in India would actually be a uh, actually cooperation, but not really a behavior of altruism, right? Yeah, um, basically, I think what you're trying to get at is, um, you know, there's levels of relatedness and social structure and social hierarchy. So, um, I know, you know, Joe Hendrick's book, uh, The Weirdest People in the World. Yes. And um, one of the hypotheses, which, which is descriptively seems correct, is that... Um, the West in particular, Western Europe, has extremely weak um, uh, structure, social structure uh, pertaining to relatedness. So it tends to focus on nuclear families. And the way that it can persist in this way is that there are non-family institutions, civil society that's extremely uh, influential in these societies. Why did this happen? Read Joe Henrik's book, The Weirdest People in the World. For his theory, um, he's not the only one that talks about this. It has to do with you know, the fall of the Roman Empire, the rise of the Roman Catholic Church in its particular time and period, et cetera, et cetera. We don't need to go into the details. Um, but basically, these non-family institutions emerge. Once the non-family institutions emerge, the theory is they provide roles, um, they, they, they serve roles and provide uh, value and services that normally extended family groups would provide. And so what happens is you have a no new social equilibrium where it predicated on nuclear families and yes there are cousins but it's not like there's like a cousin association you know um and uh and so like these non non-family institutions uh emerge in places like britain france and guess what these countries become really successful because it turns out um when you have nation level altruism um you have increased your fitness enormously at the level of it so like how many british people how many english people were there in 1500 versus english descended people today right so they probably have increased by a factor of 10 and i'm being i'm being uh, uh, pessimistic i think uh look yeah. so for example thirty thousand puritans uh turned into seven hundred fifty thousand um new englanders in 1770 so that's 150 years Right. Yep. So that's that's more than a factor of 10. Uh, it's like a factor of 20, you know. Uh, so uh, within 150 years, because of huge, the highest reproductive fitness that you ever saw recorded uh, persistently in a society is late 1600s New England, where women were having 11 children on average each. And most of them were surviving to adulthood because it wasn't like it wasn't a Malthusian environment. It was like open frontier. And so it turns out the collapse of the clans. And the extended family. So in the Roman system, you had the patrician gens and the 
Plebeian Gens, these clan systems of the Julii, the Claudii, all these things. In China, you have the clan systems, these patrilineal clan networks that really help each other. Um, in India, obviously, you have Jativarna. Um, in Northwest India and in Pakistan, you have Birdari. And in the Arab world, you have tribes. All of these systems exist. They're based on kinship and affiliation, but they're smaller than the nation state. In Western Europe, you don't have that. And so you have a situation where people have to trust each other and engage in iterated games mediated by state-level institutions. That's flourished for the state, but it's also resulted in, let's be frank, the modern world. Okay. Yeah. And so in India and in China and in the Middle East, there are other systems that evolved with agriculture and also post-agricultural city societies. So if you go to a city, if you go to a city in you know China in the 20th century, early 20th century, uh, especially if you're South Chinese, there's particular reasons the clan system was big in South China. You know, you contact people in your extended clan, they will provide you the referrals. I think this sounds very familiar to a lot of Indians. This is like a common human tendency. In the United States, you don't do anything like that. Yes, cousins help each other in an ad hoc way, but it's not very formalized. It's not very common. Uh, people are very individualistic, and it turns out that uh, that's very beneficial to the positive externalities of things like innovation, social trust, um, corruption. All of these things decrease. And this is true within Europe as well. So people are saying, oh, well, you're contrasting Europeans with non-Europeans, and that's bigoted. But if you compare Italy to Germany, you know, or even if you're going within Germany, uh, you can look at issues, issues where wh what are the weirdest, you know, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, developed. That's what the acronym is. It should really be just people who are, like, not familialistic, okay? Um, yeah. Places in Germany that are less familialistic tend to have tended to have literacy earlier. They tend to have higher economic growth, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's some benefits from it. Now, as I said earlier, monogamy is found across the world. It's obviously a social equilibrium. And so are family structures, right? So in a pre-modern world, without civic society and without rule of law, you do have to rely on these family structures. Like they are extremely adaptive. In a society that's corrupt, you want to find the civil servant who's from your extended family from your community because they'll give you, they're not going to be, they'll still, they'll still like, uh, they'll still uh, demand a bribe, but maybe it's only half as big, you know? And why do they do that? Mm -hmm. Because they are part of this greater network and they're cultivating their reputation as taking care of their own kind in the United States, in, like, in the United States, but say, for example, in Sweden, that is like very, very taboo. And people will get offended if you think that they help their family members that way, because like <laughs> objectivity and rule of law is like so important, you know? So for example, when, um, you know, in the 1980s, I remember like my dad when he came and like there was a thing that they were told people from the Indian subcontinent, uh, do not try to bribe anyone. Uh, you think it's just being polite, you will get arrested. Like they will report you and they will have you arrested. And it's, it was a routine problem apparently where, I mean, they didn't end up like prosecuting these people because like they obviously just didn't understand. They thought that they were doing the right thing, the good thing. The social norm from where they were coming was you offer a bribe. Maybe they'll reject the bribe. But at least you offer it to be polite. In the United States, that was seen as like extremely bad. One, it's illegal. And two, it's insulting to the person that they would demand a bribe to do their job, you know? So these are just showing you that the social norms different. Different. When you're talking about altruism, it depends on like what the incentives in the society are. There's not one thing that's specifically natural. So Jativarna is ubiquitous and persists in Pakistan. I mean, I know they don't call it that in Pakistan, but I've looked at the genetics. It looks exactly the same like the Indian India proper among Hindus. So I'm going to call it like similar. It's not. It doesn't exist in Bangladesh. You know, it doesn't exist as much in Sri Lanka, right? But it's very, very um, adaptive 
and functional and beneficial in these societies. But if you're saying like, oh, well, it's always been like that and it'll always be like that. Well, obviously not. It's not in most human societies. It surely was not in the past in the Indian subcontinent and it may not in the future. Yeah, but but I guess uh, where where I come from is I, I always look at the entire discussion and discourse around Jati Varna in India. And this is why I wanted to talk to you because not only... Uh, uh, are you, you know, this is your basic background is evolution and uh, you you understand the Indian discourse unlike others. So if I was to maybe go and talk about this with someone else, they'll be like, what the hell are you talking about? Why would people even care about something as uh, as weird as this? But my point is that it, it, every time, basically, you know, Jati Varna is defended by a lot of these things, you know, oh, it has survived for so long. It has to make sense. It has, uh, or it, it is absolutely fine from an evolutionary perspective. But like, like we have discussed, it actually is not. Well, it's not only, in in my view, it's not. Yeah, yeah. Let's just put so it let, let's let's separate the, the the normative. Let's separate the normative and um, the positive, right? So let's like the normative. I think we both agree, and I don't think the listeners uh, will be. Uh, will be shocked. Uh, we personally find uh, the caste system abhorrent. Okay? I'm just going to say that. Uh, I, I find it... I, I, I mean, I joke about it because it's so ubiquitous for Indians. Uh, because I, it's perfectly alien to my existence in the United States. Um, but it's also... It, it's, it's kind of abhorrent. Um, uh, you know, there might be, like, anti-caste Brahmins that I meet, but it's pretty obvious they still think of themselves as superior. Okay? And so, for example, like, you know, Indian friends were just like, well, you can't use the word sudra because that's offensive. And I was just like, well, why is it offensive? Like, aren't they the majority of Indians? And, th and that's what they are. And they're like, yeah, but it's just considered offensive. And I was just like, well, I mean, you know what? Like, part of the issue is, like, you consider the very word of describing someone as a manual laborer offensive. That's the offensive thing, that you consider it offensive. Like, there's some, there's some like, ethical judgments being made on what type of labor and work you do and how that affects um, society. So I think there's a broader contract to be deconstructed, but I'm not going to, that's not my job here. Uh, my job here is to be positive in terms of like positively describing what's going on. And so what I would say is um, these, sorts of, these sorts of systems are highly adaptive in the individual level. Um, they benefit you if you are, uh, like let's say you're a Patidar or whatever. Um, I think I'm using the term right. And you move to Mumbai, and you have cousins and relatives that can help you out. And also people in your own jati are very, very um, prominent in various aspects of the city. Uh, they help mm -hmm. you out. That is beneficial. That's very adaptive individually. But what does it do for a society? Because you know what? Most people are patidars. Mm -hmm. So like everything, every, so this is what's called, this is like one, this is zero sum. This is the fundamental issue with I think that's going on in the Indian society. Um, mm -hmm. The Bajati Varna system was highly adaptive in equilibrium state in a zero-sum world uh, where there wasn't massive economic growth and innovation, et cetera, et cetera, right? Uh, there weren't positive externalities. There was a fixed pie, and these groups are competing for the fixed pie. So there's a behavioral economic literature that came out like about 10 years ago comparing North and South India and uh, rural UP, and I think, I think it was Tamil Nadu. I'm not 100% sure. And they basically figured out that people in rural UP – um, they prefer that everybody be poor as long as they were the richest person in the village. Whereas people in South India uh, accepted that they might, they, like the rich people, the, the ones that were at the top, they were given the option of being in the middle, but richer. And they took that option. Okay. I think most Americans would take that option. 
Uh, I'm not like going to speak for most Indians, but most Americans would take the second option. The first option, frankly, seems, um, I won't say unethical, but it just seems like uh, uh, obtuse. Maybe that's the word I would use. Like, it just it doesn't fit well. Like, you just want to be richer. You know what I'm saying? You don't necessarily want to be at the top. Like, we're a middle-class society, mm -hmm. right? And so I think what's going on with the Jati Varna system is that it comes out of a Malthusian world, which was typical, and it was a good adaptation for that world. You know, um, I think this is controversial, but I think it's arguably one of the reasons Islam didn't have, uh, it didn't spread throughout the society as fast as it did in, say, in Iran, right? Um, so you can, like, say, like, oh, it was positive for that reason. I mean, I'm not saying whether it's positive or negative. I'm just saying it persisted. It's around. It's obviously was a socially useful cultural structure. The question you're, I think, posing is, is it useful today? Is it useful mm -hmm. today in the urban areas of the Indian subcontinent? In some ways, people are still getting benefit out of it uh, by having these family structures. But the problem is you might have a society that's stuck in a suboptimal equilibrium state. Okay? So um, for your individual well-being, it might be optimal to know the jati, uh, the community origin of every single bureaucrat in your city, because then you can go to the ones that are from your community. That's what's adaptive for you. That's what's efficient. But what would be efficient for society as a whole is for bureaucrats not to be corrupt. And for it not to matter, right? So that is that. Yep. So it would be efficient for society as a whole uh, for everybody to be able to trust each other and help each other. That reduces the necessity of uh, free riding, you know, uh, laws and institutions and whatnot. So in Italy, for example, they have um, they have like local police, they have like state police, they have the Carabinieri. Italy is like one of the most policed states in the world. Uh, in Europe, the reason Italy is highly policed is the police are corrupt, and so you need to have different groups of police. Like, for example, the Carbonari in particular are elite, and they're, shown, they're seen as less corrupt. You know what I'm saying? But Italy has tax police that goes and demands receipts from businesses so that they don't tax evade through taking cash. Okay? And so why does Italy do this? Because Italy has a social system where, like, um, you know, there's, like, kind of a cultural adaptation. Like, everyone tries to screw everyone over, Okay? That's their idea. The problem is it imposes a cost on all of society. Like you might get yours by evading the tax, but by evading the tax, society can't function. And so they have to do all these things. So my point in India is, yes, Jati Varna is useful on the individual level, but it emerged in a particular social context of an agricultural society uh, that um, you know was living under the hegemony of Turco-Islamic rulers, like all these other things that are very, very different from today. Yeah, so so that's the thing, and that's exactly what my question was. My question was based on the reality that, let's say, post the invention of the concept of nation-states, post the advent of the British in India, the unification of the Indian princely states after the British left in India, the, the, the social changes that have happened in Indian society, where Indian society and the Hindu society is also modernizing, and which is why I always say Hindutva is Hindu modernity, where Hindutva is an attempt to get over your caste identity, your jati, your varnas, and come up, coming up with uh, a new form. So basically, I think the Hindutva ideologues actually got all these things and they realized that this system is actually holding us back. And from uh, overall societal fitness, so if I was to use the word loosely, which is called the Hindu society fitness, so from their inclusive fitness at a societal level, from the level of the moral arc, actually it makes no sense, right? Then, then this system is, has to be discarded then slowly but surely. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's descriptively correct. Um, also, like the exogamy rates are too high for the levels of genetic relatedness that you're talking to persist for the next couple of centuries. So the 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 um, uniqueness of the Indian subcontinent is the endogamy rates were so strict because you only need a little bit of exogamy per generation for the genetic differences between groups to just disappear. And so the fact that they persisted indicates, you know, so for example, in a South Indian village, the exogamy rates are, um, you know, estimating, looking at the differences between, like, say, uh, Brahmins and Reddies in a village in Andhra Pradesh, you know, that's an you know, example, uh, you know, that it, it had to be like one in 500 per generation, which is shockingly low for humans because humans like having sex, you know? Um, so now it's not one in 500. Now it's closer to like one in 20, I think, being conservative and perhaps one in 10 being more liberal. That is just too high for this to persist more than another couple of hundred years. So Jativarna um, as a biological uh, entity, which does exist, um, is not going to persist unless you impose a law uh, to prevent intermarriage. Because it's just intermarriage is too high. And once people are, are genetically mixed up, it's only a cultural institution. Um, as for whether it's useful or not, um, I think, uh, well, I mean, Pakistan doesn't have Jativarna, but it has like Birdari. It has... Um, you know, it has these extended family groups. It has feudalism. Let's compare Pakistan to what used to be East Pakistan and uh, think about how these two societies are doing and what their trajectory is, okay? Using a non-Indian example. But I think, I mean, for the Pakistani elite, for the Punjabi uh, gentry, um, their system works really well for them, you know? But for Pakistan as a whole, uh, look at their GDP uh, per capita uh, with Bangladesh, look at the trajectory. And I think you see a society that for all of its problems in Bangladesh, um, it's old um, feudal, it's called feudal, uh, social systems have collapsed over the last century, uh, over the last 50 years. There's no population structure that I can see that has to do with clans or extended family groups. And you're having a society that's progressing in a modern way, export-oriented, East Asian-led growth model, even though its human capital base is considerably lower than East Asia. Um, whereas Pakistan is stuck in its own stationary state um, of the... Pakistan's being Pakistan. And I think if that's what you need to look at. Like, why is it like that? Uh, well, it's because, you know, it, it's good. It's good for the ruling families of the PPP and the Muslim League. It's good for them. And so, you know, um, so, like, let's let's say that you're a Hindu. Is it really good that um, Dalits, and, like, you can, that, is it really good that in this society, uh, the majority of the population that's Hindu um is considered less than the minority that's, uh, you know, of the higher caste, quote-unquote, forward class. Is it really... It's good for the forward castes, but, like, are the, are the, are the lower castes going to stay Hindu and definitely? Probably not. You know, like, let's be yeah. honest. They'll become Christian where and Muslim. Does the, where's the, the, where does the apology for Jati Varna come from? It never comes from the so-called, you know, lower caste. I never use that word. I always say SCST, the schedule caste, schedule yeah. price. They never like the Jati Varna. So yeah. It's only the, 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 the people who have reaped the benefit of sure, this. Sure. Uh, I mean, I, I say it openly, third-rated system. They, they're the only ones apologizing. Yeah, so let, let, let's be clear here. They will point to you correctly that people from the lower caste or the SES or whatever you want to call it, they themselves use the system to benefit themselves, and they feel more comfortable with people like them. But, but, what's their alternative? Like their alternative, like if they if they turn away, if they turn away turn away from their social system, social support system, uh, they're exposed to Indian society, which is not going to raise them up, 
right? So there, there. So I mean, you know, what I've seen online is people say, well, the Dalits and the, you know, I don't know. I guess you can't say Sudra, whatever. Um, all these groups, they use the systems too, and they're not, they're not twice born and all this stuff. Well, of course they use the systems. What are they going to do? You know, I mean, it's like saying like, um, it's like saying, okay, this ancient Roman uh, freedman, this rich guy, he used to be a slave, and you know, he bought his freedom. See, it works. He bought his freedom. He accepts, he accepts the institution of slavery. He didn't reject it. Well, what do you expect him to do? Of course he's going to buy his freedom. It's a society where slavery is legal. That's the only way you can exit out of it. So, of course, they're going to be participants within the system because they didn't create the terms of the system. That's the world they live in, right? And so my question to your Indian listeners is look at yourselves and look around. And I, I know enough about you, Kushal. I don't need to ask you this. Um, make the world that you want, you know, not the world that you live in. So, like, you know, Indians talk about, like, look at what China's doing. You know what I'm saying? Well, you know, think a little beyond um, what it was like to be in the 1600s and trying to maintain your traditions and your community in the face of Mughal rule. Because that's not the world you live in now. The world you live in now is an 80% Hindu country that's mired in poverty, uh, where people have their hands against each other based on their Jati origin and all these communal conflicts and stuff like that. Is that useful for you now? No, I don't think it is. And I think we all can kind of agree on that at the end of the day. So like enough with the fucking rationalizations, right? Because that's what it is. Like I'm, I'm being a little less scientific here, but that's what I see. I see rationalizations because it's like when I push these people, they just, they like these institutions because it's, it's safe and it's useful to them. And in fact, it is like everyone likes what is familiar to them. So the collapse of these family uh, systems in the West Roman Empire occurred after the fall of Rome. And that was not a positive time. These were not decisions they made because they wanted, they wanted these elite kindreds to collapse. They didn't want that at all. In fact, the collapse of the Roman Catholic Church in some places reversed it because the church was an institution that battled against these big family units because it was an alternative locus of power. Once the, once the Roman Catholic Church collapsed, you see people starting to marry cousins and elite aristocratic lineages starting to become powerful again. It's human nature to do this, right? But we need to understand that on the broad level, um, this, this tendency to be like narrow creates negative externalities on society as a whole. And so I think that's what you're pointing to. Um, that's, that's what you live with and uh, that's what frustrates you. And I think that that's where you're coming from. Um, as far as the science, the science can't speak to whether that's good or bad. The science can only describe right? And so, I mean, that's what I was trying to do, especially for the first part of this conversation. But yeah, to be entirely frank, it's probably, Jativarna is probably not a system that can persist more than a couple of centuries, max being optimistic. And it's probably going to cause like a huge drag on the Indian economic system, because that's what favoritism does. That's what favoritism does. What happened in Afghanistan recently with the overthrow of Ghani? Um, one thing I've read is he, unlike Karzai, which much more explicit about favoring Pashtuns. Okay, and so that that reduced the support from the Tajiks and the Hazaras and the other groups, uh, which are necessary for any resistance to the Taliban, right? That was good for Ghani. That was good for his family. Ghani apparently absconded with one hundred sixty nine million dollars in cash, so it's good for Ghani, mm -hmm. not good for Afghanistan, mm -hmm. right? So what's good for you and what's good for your family is not always good for the nation. That's a fundamental truth, and um, it's really hard to say. You know what? Um, I'm a privileged person in this system. But I need to take a step back and improve the system, even if it comes at my relative privilege. That is what needs to happen rationally, and that's not going to happen. 
What happened in the West to break this system was the shock of the fall of Rome, the destruction of the Roman aristocracy, the emergence of barbarians who were weaker and had to negotiate with the Roman Catholic Church, which refused to allow the reemergence of powerful elite lineages that monopolized control in the society. Like they didn't do it. The Catholic Church didn't do it for their own benefit because what happens is then they get the, they get the estates when people die without heirs. So they had a self-interest too. But it worked out that these coalitions of self-interest between the German barbarians who needed legitimacy and the Roman Catholic Church who offered legitimacy at the price of the destruction of familialism in the West produced the modern world that we know with a non-career bureaucracy, a scientific culture predicated on selfishly giving of yourself and discovering the world as it is rather than affording knowledge, right? So uh, I think that that is the future that India should, should aim towards. But uh, the model is there. It's not easy. It didn't occur easily in the West. But, you know, maybe knowing that it didn't occur easy in the West can make other people in other societies understand how it could occur. Now, one thing that I have to say, fertility rate in India's crashed. Fertility rate in the Arab world's crashed. Um, it's going to be hard to actually maintain the utility of familialist systems when you don't even have that many cousins. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. That's a very important point. I think this is a very good summary of uh, what Chatiwarna is as a system. And and it was very important to get, get the scientific perspective because, uh, like I said, a lot of times, a lot of naturalistic fallacies are committed uh, in these discussions in India. And uh, the thing is that, you know, you can get into Twitter wars, but that's not my nature. I always believe in giving a robust uh, first principles-based explanation and... Uh, if I do it, people will be like, oh, you're not a scientist. So, <laughs> and, and it's always better if you give the explanation because you can give it from an outsider's perspective who, mm -hmm. who basically has no, as they say, who has no dog in this fight. So uh, when you say, you know, it, maybe even I have many blind mm -hmm. spots and, and it's always important that even my blind spots are exposed in something mm -hmm. like this because maybe I could be wrong too and I don't necessarily have the answers. But but uh, thanks a lot, Razif, for coming mm -hmm. and explaining this. Uh, 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 I'll leave you with the last comments and then we'll end today's Yeah, session. yeah. Let me, let me just say one thing. Uh, let, let's get it out of the India context. You know, I'm an American. Um, I think we're the most powerful nation in the world. We're the richest nation in the world. You know, but, um, you know, there's some issues with China right now. And I think they're founded. I think we need to be, you know, I think we all agree on that. But when I hear that the Chinese have crushed COVID, when I hear that the Chinese are richer, the part of me that's human rejoices. Okay. And so even though the world is a competition between human groups, we are also all human. And I don't want to live in a world where I am the one fat human, you know, and everyone is starving and poor. Right. So it's like, I rejoice when people in China, um, emerge out of grinding poverty because that is liberating and positive for the human race. And I, I just enjoin people in India to also remember that. And like, you know, and like do this even on the national context, like when people who have been traditionally subordinated, when they take power, when the majority takes power, that's, that's humanity taking power, taking charge of themselves, not just you, because you, you are human and nothing is alien to you. You know, you're human. Nothing is alien to you. That is human. Right. And that is the fundamental truth. And that's from Terence, uh, a pagan uh, Roman poet. Right. But, but but we too are Terrence, and Terrence is us. And that, that's, I think, the fundamental uh, truth that I, I would like to get across. All right. 
Okay, guys, time to wrap today's discussion up. Please support Razib. Uh, he has his own Substack. You can also go and subscribe to the different podcasts. Uh, I think Razib has Brown Pandas. Uh, he also has a blog, Gene Expression. I'm going to leave all the links. Just go, just uh, go to Razib.com. Go to Razib.com. Yeah. yeah, so I'm going to leave the link to his website. You go to Razib.com and you can check all the links there. Uh, you know, there you'll have the link to the Substack, to all his podcasts. Uh, Razib has always been kind to the Charbok podcast. Whenever I tell him to come and explain something, you know, he's more than happy to come and chat. Uh, his Substack is probably one of the best things going around. I will urge all of hey, you hey. to go and subscribe. Hey, man, you're, you're my Raja and I'm your Sudra. I'm here to serve. <laughs> 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 all right guys we'll wrap today's discussion up please support the childwork podcast become a member on youtube or subscribe on patreon or buy the merch or support via donations on upi i'll see you next time until then namaste take care